This podcast is brought to you by StoryKingBooks.com. Sign up to receive a free copy of my latest ebook novella, Kane's Confession. If you would like to learn how to support this show, visit www.patreon.com forward slash the Story King. And now for today's episode. Welcome to the Story King Podcast, the show all about fiction, film, and form. I'm your host, John Carlo, and today we have illustrator, copywriter, and most recently, author of the novel Fool's Proof, Ava Sandor. Ava Sandor is an illustrator and copywriter, and most recently author of Fool's Proof, a comic fantasy novel that the Book Life Prize called a cleverly plotted, twisty novel with a gratifying conclusion. Here is my conversation with Ava Sandor. Hi, Ava. Welcome to the Story King podcast. Hi, Giancarlo. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Awesome for you to be here. So I want to start off by asking you, what is your story? Tell us a little bit about your background, who you are, and what you do. Yes, my story, a little bit about me. Well, I always say that I'm an illustrator because that's a good way to sum it up. Um, But really, uh, in addition to doing illustrations, I'm also an Adobe Creative Suite trainer. I wrote a lot of advertising copy back in the day, and now I've written a novel. So my story of my art career is that I started drawing things for money at a really, really young age. I think I just started drawing really young. So by the time I was five, I was pretty good at it. And I had a lot of black and white drawings lying around the house that my parents collected. And with the help of one of their friends who was a graphic designer, they put these together into the form of a coloring book. Mm. And they sold this book at Chicago's McCormick Place to benefit endangered species because it was in the 70s and environmentalism was just really starting to ramp up. And after that, I sold another coloring book to another environmental group. And then after that, just kind of segued into doing art for magazines, local newspapers, etc. And by the time I went to college, I was already selling art and doing brochure layouts and all of that. So it was kind of set to be my career path. But I was also a huge reader growing up. And if you're the kind of person who likes to make things and you like to read, you're going to probably end up writing things a lot. And I'd been writing short stories and poems. And in high school, I won a national writing competition. And that's when Carnegie Mellon University kind of noticed, oh, here's a a female, a writer. You know, it was very overloaded with, you know, engineering types and uh, boys. And so they offered me a writing scholarship there. I visited CMU. I just loved it. But then at the very last minute, I switched tracks. I switched back to illustration because it just seemed like what to do. So that's how I went through my training, my my youth, I guess I could say, just doing what came naturally. (laughs) So you have been illustrating and writing basically since you were young. Mm -hmm. Yep. I've been doing it literally when I say all my life, like as i recently had a very interesting experience. My mom gave me all the art I'd ever done. I had no idea that she'd kept it, but she kept everything way back from when I was like a toddler or something. And to anyone who thinks life is short, you never looked through 50 years of your stuff. (laughs) You never did. 
And I got to say, so I really did start drawing when I was really, really young. And people are always like, oh, is there such a thing as natural talent? And I say, well, you know, you have a natural knack for something. Most people do have a thing that they kind of enjoy doing better than anything else. But mostly, I think being good at something comes down to doing it a lot. Right. And by the time, yeah, by the time I was in kindergarten, I think I must have drawn more art than many many adults have drawn in their entire life. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, a lot of my listeners are writers, they're musicians, filmmakers, other creative types. Working in illustration for a number of years, was that freelance? Was it for a company or a little bit of both? How did that go? Yeah, it was, it was mostly both because when I was younger, I didn't obviously have a particular company to work for. Although when I was in high school, I used to walk across the street and give my graphic design layouts to a, a business form company that was over there that I was doing work for. And I used to draw pictures of houses for local landscapers to show like where their you know shrubs and plants were supposed to be and that kind of thing. So that was freelancing. But after I graduated from CMU, I went to work in La Crosse, Wisconsin at a little direct marketing agency doing art and layout, writing a ton of catalogs and brochures. I was one of the very first users of Photoshop and what mm. was uh, then, yeah, because at the time that I was in college, there were no computers involved in art and design yet. I was that very first generation. It was the most amazing timing. I graduated CMU in 1991 and they had made sure that everybody had something to do with computers because that's the kind of place it is, you know. Mm. But as I worked on that, yep, here comes Pork Express. That was then the only real layout program. There were others, but that was the big dog. There was PageMaker and a few more. And I caught this wave really early. And later on, that was going to turn out to be really very good for me because I was teaching other people and still am how to use Adobe Creative Suite software. But when I decided I was going to go to graduate school because I thought I might want to be a professor, that didn't really turn out to be my track. I prefer to teach people more on a short-term basis. You know, the training that I do is three to five days long, let's say, per class. And yeah. um, But that was really wonderful. Uh, Madison was a fantastic town, University of Wisconsin-Madison, you know, great, great fun. But I went back to Chicago and I went back to advertising and I ended up at a lot of different places like the PR firm Golan & Harris, where I met my husband. Uh, after that, I managed a small design department at GATX Rail, which is a huge tank car leasing company. Uh, then I was one of the partners in a boutique real estate advertising company that was Firestar Communications. And the illustrations that I did, what just whatever needed doing, like logos, cartoons, floor plans, you know, if it had to be done, I did it uh, sometimes single-handedly, sometimes with the help of my fantastic other artist friends. I've got probably 20 pounds of bags of brochures and things wow. that I designed then. Yes, I wrote radio advertising. I wrote the brochures as well. The actors were so much fun to work with. It was really cool. So a radio spot is like it. 30 second long little movie right. with sound effects, the soundtrack. Yeah. And then in 2006, I started my own business, which I am doing now, Hussar Designs. And one of the most interesting parts of that has been uh, being an Adobe certified instructor. And in 14 years, I think I have taught, uh, I think I've taught about oh, many hundreds, maybe even thousands of students how to use Photoshop, Illustrator, InDesign, and Acrobat. So you're teaching the stuff that mm -hmm. 
that you really were introduced to at the very early stages and now it's evolved to what it is. I mean, I have a cousin who teaches motion design and it's all on the computer and yeah, so it's evolved mm-hmm. <laughs> over, over the... I mean, it was very simple when it started out. The idea that you did not have to do literal paste up with wax on a board was really amazing because the finished designs were so polished looking. At first, people didn't understand that they were just preliminary. Before that, when you had a client, you would draw something which was a sketch and everybody could see that it was just a sketch and they understood that that was not the final form and that there would be changes made. But when the layout started to be done by computer, they were so polished looking that people were often a little bit alarmed that, oh, no, this is it. This is done. I didn't get a chance to explain anything, you know, and you could tell them, no, 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 no. We can change our minds now. And that turned out to be a little bit of a, you know, blessing and a curse because you can change your mind so quickly. People took that opportunity to change their minds a lot. And that was a struggle and it continues to be. But overall, I would say it's a wonderful benefit because when you design something this way, you can test back and forth. You can you can select which version is better and really zero in quickly on the best solutions. And Mm. when we talk about my book cover, I you know, I do have a lot more to say about that too. Well, let's talk about your novel Fool's Proof. Without giving away too much, why don't you tell us? what it's about, why did you write that particular book, and what was the inspiration behind it? Okay, Um, what it's about, I will say right off the bat, I'll just give the quick rundown what it's about. Um, Disgraced, exiled royal jester, Malfred Murd, hatches a plan to win back his former glory. All he has to do is trick a sweet, fatty old lady into thinking he can work magic, but the trick could cost Fred his life. The lady is Dame Elsabet de Wellen, proud ruler of a technologically advanced country that's poised between survival and destruction. Sweet Mm. she may be, but she's also armed, deadly, and crazy enough to drag Fred along with her on the desperate rescue mission that will decide the future of her people. So that's the official, yeah, this little blurb I've been telling people. (laughs) It sounds fun. It sounds like a fun read. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it is. And I will definitely send you a download link so you can read it too. Cool. And I can't tell a lie. I wrote a book because I was afraid that my eyesight might be starting to go. I was kind of worried. <laughs> I'm like, what's going to happen to me if I can't draw right anymore? And most of my art is it's meant for internal use within a client's company. My major client has me doing caricatures, which are their corporate gift. And I do a ton of these, but no one else is ever going to see them. If someone wants to see some of my art, probably the most public piece of it that's out there now is the light pole banners that are all around Chicago's Union Station. I did those for Amtrak. It's Mm. 20 different cities. So you can see those for sure. But the rest of my stuff, no one else is ever going to see it. I can't resell it. So I thought to myself, I'd love to do what musicians do. And that's create something that has a long life that you can sell different rights to again and again. You can create variations on it, extend the series, gain fans, and make your intellectual property work for you for a lifetime. So since I already write a lot for other people, I thought to myself, you know, that could be a novel. And I made a couple of false starts. Uh, But then one day I was inspired to write something with the kind of, I like to call it luscious language that I enjoy reading in the books of Patrick O'Brien. I am a huge, huge Mm. O'Brien fan. 
Yeah. And I just love that some people, it's not for them, but if you really enjoy a sentence that twists and turns and goes different places and you like learning new vocabulary and putting things in a funny way, um, things that seem serious on the surface, but the way that the characters say them is just such a delight. And I thought I would do something like that for me. Um, and I wrote a little short funny snippet uh, that was a little Renaissance era kind of bit where a jester who has a bird sidekick tries to um, trick a lady who's riding in a sedan chair out of a couple of coins. And then the lady kind of flips the switch on him. She lets her pet cheetah jump out of the sedan chair and chase him. And that just made me laugh. So I thought, I'm going to go on with that idea. And that's right. where it all really began. <laughs> you mentioned Patrick O'Brien. Is that the author of Master and Commander, that one? Yes. And he wrote 20 completed books and one a finish or a final one. Um, that was not completed before his death. And mm. it's a whole world. People think that it's like Navy stories or about the age of sail, but it is actually a complete picture of the world in the 19th century that I can only compare maybe to Charles Dickens. Mm. It talks about, yes, everything about how people acted back then by land, by sea, in the law, in personal relationships, in what food they ate, how they dressed, how they worked everything you get this wonderful picture of life now i'm not going to write 20 books at least i don't have 20 books in mind but if you have the time to read them they are just incredible really love them i'll have to to do that i've heard of him but i haven't read him yet so i'll have to uh mm -hmm. i'll have to get on that some people say it takes a little getting into if you're going to read patrick o'brien and you read the very first book right um there are characters in that book who don't know about ocean going life about the navy and about boats and ships and the other characters will describe it to them so it's kind of a holmes and watson sort of thing where we have a viewer or sorry a reader surrogate is a character who doesn't understand this so patrick o'brien does make an effort to explain it to a reader mm -hmm. but often people stumble over that very first book because there is a learning curve just to warn you right okay mm -hmm. Yep. I've been warned. <laughs> mm -hmm. You've been warned, but if you make it through that first one, you're going to be hooked for life. All right. I'll, I'll try to do that. So yeah. tell me a little bit about how you constructed the plot of Fool's Proof. I'm, I'm generally a short story novella writer, the novel I have yet to conquer. So what does it take to write a long form, cohesive story plot wise? Mm -hmm. Well, um, I'm really pretty proud that my plot turned out well. I had a reviewer call it a cleverly plotted twisty novel with a gratifying conclusion. <laughs> and that just reading that just made it all worthwhile. That was wonderful. And uh, what I was going for was the kind of plot that I enjoyed from watching old reruns of Doctor Who when that first came to the US and they were showing it on Saturday mornings on our local PBS station here in Chicago. And they would take the episodes, which I think were um, separated. In Britain, I think they showed them in half-hour segments, but mm. for us, they showed it all in one big bang. It was like all in one big go. It was an hour and a half and broadcast in three parts. And the first two parts, I always noticed, were not very well related to each other. But by part three, the third half hour, everything would come together in a really satisfying way. And I was always watching for that. 
And another another inspiration was Seinfeld in the sense that there's all of these disparate incidents in each one of those nutty stories, and they kind of dovetail together and they form this chain reaction of absolute insanity. And I just love that kind of thing, right? Where there's several storylines going on and interlocking with each other. So what I say maybe to you who writes short stories or novellas, if you can write a good solid short story, you are almost there. What you need to do then is to think of a complex plot as if you were writing a set of short stories, right? And each of them either depends on or feeds into the other ones. So for instance, mm. you can make it, yeah, so you can make it so that storyline A absolutely has to conclude in a certain way because the conditions that result from that cause something crucial to storyline B. Mm. Meanwhile, storyline B would never have happened unless storyline C branched off from A in some way. So you see what I mean? If the stories depend on one another and hold each other up um, like a, a kind of a structure, like a, a bunch of sticks put together to form a, like a, I don't know, the, that sort of teepee structure that when you build a fire, you're supposed to do, you know, right, like right. self-supporting stick thing. If your storylines of the separate short stories can do that, boom, I feel like that's an owl. Okay, so would you say at least three threads then or more? Now that I don't know. It depends okay. on your skill, I think. Uh, if you try to juggle too many, of course, you, you run the terrible risk of ending up confusing your readers and not having spent enough time, I think, on any one of the, uh, the storylines. Usually in a TV episode, there's two, right? They call it the A story and the B story. Maybe in a novel, three to tell you the truth, I really did not count how many there are in my novel. To this moment, I haven't counted them. I just know that they all depend on one another, right? And they have to come together um, at a certain moment. So, Okay. What are some of the differences between writing and illustrating? You've done both. Are they similar at all or totally different? Okay. Well, first off, are they similar? And I'll just throw this one out here. If your client asks you to write 200 words about the mini summer sausage assortment by 10 a.m. on a Thursday, which is exactly the kind of thing I used to do. I think that is pretty much the same thing as a client asking for a two by three inch cartoon of a gorilla looking confused or whatever. It's, it's the same kind of mentality. It's the same skill set. You discern what they want. Um, they, you, you know how long it's going to take you. You do this thing and you're ready for, you know, a you're ready for them to tell you whether it was good or not, or whether it worked or not. And if it turned out all right, then, then they pay you. So I think that's the same skill set. Illustrating is kind of like the ad writing of art. But and then you have at the other end of the spectrum, you have experimental literature or the kind of fine art where you aren't beholden to anybody. You're free mm. to explore any topic for any length of time, right? But the flip side of that is that you really cannot expect anyone particularly to care. That's more like done for you. So I would say writing a novel is somewhere in between because there's so many different mm. kinds of novels, right? Your reader is your ultimate client, that's true. What you write should be clear and appealing and well-paced from their point of view. That's true. But you also do have a freedom to indulge yourself, to like cut loose and express yourself in your own way, because I think that's what readers really want. Besides the ingredients of a genre novel, some of them are going to say, yeah, I want to read about witches or what have you. But it's really your individuality that they want, like the, the language of 
Patrick O'Brien, for instance, or Charles Dickens. So you mm. do have a responsibility almost to cut loose and indulge a little bit more in a novel, I think, than you do in um, ad writing. Even I, there, you do have a personality, though. I see. Mm -hmm. so when you're doing uh, illustration and ad copy, it's more about just the needs of the client rather than your own whims. Mm -hmm, exactly. Now, they do choose you as the artist for the job based on your portfolio. So they can mm. see what kind of work you've done in the past, and they already feel that you would be a good fit. So they've already chosen you in the same way that a reader maybe pulls your novel off the shelf and says, ah, yeah, I know this person, I've read their other stuff and I like it. But, you know, if you're doing an illustration, you can't get too far into your own self about it because someone is buying this for a reason. They're not mm -hmm. buying it because they want to have fun with you. They're buying it because they need it to illustrate some piece of work or they need it to be on a packaging or they have some purpose for the job. So as far as the, the technical similarities between writing and art, um, I find them fascinating too because what do we do when we write? Some people make outlines, right? And a short piece of writing like Charles Dickens's early work is called a sketch. And so these words apply, right, to both writing and art. And we're dealing with the same issues. How much is too much detail? What's my point of view? Am I blowing something out of proportion? Should I delete this part? Should I tone something down? Should I focus more on a thing? It's, it's all the same stuff. I could go on and on. It's the same process and the same goals, just in a different idiom. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode. I just wanted to take the opportunity to let you know about a brand new resource I recently published. If you're interested in starting your own podcast, I've created an ebook called Launch Your Podcast Like a Pro that walks you through all the little details of producing and launching your own show. So for less than $5, you can own this resource by visiting storykingbooks.com or amazon.com. Those links will be in the show notes. And now back to today's episode. Did you feel that your experience writing ad copy helps you writing fiction because it's, you know, persuasive writing? Does it, does it help you at all? Yes, I think it does. And it's funny because I think ads are fiction. There's actually a term called puffery, which means the kind of language that's used in advertising. And it's legally protected when you say something that's a kind of a an unprovable, overblown claim, like this is the best tasting chocolate available today. You know, it's, that's really one of those things. It's, it, it's an opinion, it's a fiction. Um, and when you write advertising copy, you have to change your voice so that the product that you write about has the kind of writing that supports it. You can't be the same writer writing about luxury real estate and then turn around and write about a snack food in that same voice. It's just it won't sound the same. It won't be right. Mm -hmm. So if you are very quick on the turn and you can change your writing style uh, to what's needed at that moment, I think that's great training for a writer and, and everybody should try it. You know, it's, it is really worth developing that skill set because characters speak differently, different storylines or plot lines need to have different moods. Different books need to have different overarching moods. And it really is helpful to be able to do that. Now, I didn't plan on asking this, but since we're talking about it, a lot of writers who write fiction, 
you know, if they want to make a living, a lot of people want to go to copywriting, but don't know how to get into it. So what would you recommend for people to even get into copywriting if they don't have prior experience writing ads? You know, I honestly couldn't tell you because I just fell into it because it had to be done. I was laying out a catalog and somebody had to write something about, I, I think it was food. We had, when I worked in uh, lacrosse, we had a lot of clients who were food, specialty foods. Like for instance, there was the monks of New Skeet who made a lot of different kinds of food, including their famous bourbon fudge out of their monastery in, I think it was Kentucky. And we had um, some nuns who made cheesecakes and we had the Swiss colony with all the beef log and the petty fours and the cheese assortments and all that. And as I was laying out these catalogs, there were blank places where the food needed to be described. And later on, there were blank places where things like x-ray developing machines or uh, computer hardware had to be described. So I would just write those to fill them in. And that's how I started writing ad copy. I really do not know how someone would go about it deliberately. <laughs> yeah, it just it was an accident <laughs> for me. <laughs> and you got into it as well because you were kind of doing illustration. So it was, it was kind of like you were doing both wearing a couple of hats there, right? Yes, I was. At that time, when computers really hadn't come in quite yet, when digital photography was not at the level that it could be relied on for everything inexpensively. At that time, I was drawing what's known as photo indications. It was cheaper to have an artist like me draw sketches of these products and how they were going to be laid out and photographed than it was to actually have the photographer come mm. in and take Polaroids of them because that would burn materials. It wasn't digital yet. We didn't have free endless pixels. So I was drawing, uh, I don't know, graphics cards or fruit or something. And, you know, because I was illustrating, then I was making the catalogs then I wrote about this stuff and just it, one thing led to another. That's how it happened. Okay. So let's talk about your cover, Fool's Proof. Mm -hmm. uh, I assume you designed that that cover then? Yes. Yeah. Here, I'll show you a picture. Yeah, You've seen sure. it, right? I have seen it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think that, yeah, now this was a big, big uh, bonus for me was being able to make my own cover and also do my own book design of the of the actual layout of the pages and so forth because all of that costs writers money if you mm -hmm. are self-published right or an indie publisher you do have to hire someone to do that if you don't know how and if you are working with a traditional publisher they have people to do that for you and for me i feel like that was good because i really did want to make my own cover i was ready to let someone else do it if that was necessary but i'm really glad that i got the chance to do it and a lot of people, I think, download the sample of my book because the cover looks like what the book is. I mm. think that's really, really important. Yeah, the cover is a marketing decision. You can't just fall in love with something. You have to think, does this sell this product? And when someone looks at it, they can see immediately that my book is in a fantasy genre. They can see that it's going to be a comedy, right? And it looks good at a thumbnail size, which is also really, really important. You have to be aware people are going to see this uh, little teeny tiny 
thumbnail of your cover mm-hmm. on Amazon and Goodreads and, and all of the different online retailers. And it might look really terrific at full size, but if there's anything about it that makes it illegible when it's small, you really do have to change that. So I use Photoshop to do my cover. It is 100% not real embroidery. Um, I did an interview in the Carnegie Mellon alumni newsletter this past autumn that went into more detail about that process too. Yeah. And I'll definitely have that link in there. Mm -hmm. I, you know, as far as uh, I'm a self-publishing author as well, and, and I didn't, I designed the covers, but I had to hire an artist, like you said, do it. But it's nice having a say in that process, you know, mm-hmm. saying, I want this, this, and this. And then when they come back to you, if, if it's not exactly what you want, you could be, can you change this or that? Like, so self-publishing authors have a lot of say in the cover. It's a nice benefit. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so, see, you've worked with an illustrator, too, and you know how there's that back and forth and, you know, they have to understand what you're asking for and then come back with an idea, which is at least what you'd hope for and maybe even more. Sometimes it's wonderful when you can surprise a client and and they say, oh, my gosh, that's even better than I would have thought. Right. But yes, when you are self-publishing your work, then you do get the chance to be hands on with the cover in a way that sometimes I think traditional publishing authors are disappointed with their covers. They Sometimes I've read interviews where they say, well, but that's nothing at all like my character or I never would have thought of using that because it has nothing to do with my book. But the marketing department at the publisher understands that that is going to appeal to the buyer and that it's going to sell the book. So it's not about being in love with it, although it's a really cool thing to be able to do that as a, an indie publisher. Right, the cover is all about marketing right? Mm -hmm. Because the cover has to sell the book before anybody ever reads it. (laughs) Yes. And one that I've noticed recently is um, the Dresden Files series, which I just started to read. A lot of people are very much aware that the character does not wear a hat in the books. He's Mm -hmm. even mentions at one point that he really does not like hats, but he always (laughs) has a hat on the cover, right? So that's become an in-joke to them. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So what made you go the self-publishing route? Was that intentional or did you try to get an agent at first? What, what was that about? Yeah. Uh, at first, I did think I wanted to go with traditional publishing um, because I was. my thinking was I really don't have time to do all the marketing. I have my art to do. I have my classes to teach. And you know, I didn't care whether I'd be able to draw my own cover because I understood that. So I went to a really wonderful conference that was the Midwest Writers Workshop in Muncie, Indiana. And I went to learn as much as I could about the business and about the first step, which was landing an agent. So I took all of those classes. I came home. I started that process. And oh, my God, it is so tedious. It takes so long. There's so many you know, you have to follow up on so many contacts and Mm. everyone knows it takes a long time, right? But my energy kind of ran out. I really, I have to admit my, my zeal to find an agent sort of petered out and I sort of pushed the book under the bed, you know, for a Mm. few years and went on with my life. Because at that time, it wasn't horribly important to me whether I published it or not. You know, it was, I was thinking of the future, but I was like, yeah, I've got other things to do in the short term. But, um, I did actually read a lot of great blogs about getting an agent, and I wanted to shout out to The Query Shark and to Nathan Bransford because I really enjoyed reading those blogs a lot. Anyways, though, back to the book under the bed, the COVID, then then here comes COVID-19, right? And I was stuck at home like everybody else. 
And, you know, after you've cleaned your house for the 50th time and baked all the bread and done all the crafts, right, I looked around and I saw that, you know what, some of the things in the indie publishing and self-publishing world have changed a lot in those five years. Um, there, was, there was now a big industry, there was now a big industry of support tools for self-publishers that would help with marketing and other things that were formerly just the publisher's responsibility. Mm -hmm. And I was also reading that publishers were actually asking authors to do a lot of this work themselves anyhow. So I figured, you know, if I'm going to be putting this sweat and toil into it either way, at least in the self-publishing angle, I'm going to have a chance to learn something about a complete new up-and-coming field rather than learn how to fit into something that's already there and that I may not make my own life. So I would be able to help others maybe publish their own books when I'm done. And I actually do have a couple of friends who are looking for my help now that I've learned more about it. And I'm a newbie to it. I mean, there are obviously are so many people who've been involved in self-publishing and indie publishing since it even began. And they've seen all the Wild West and the ups and the downs and, you know, the new tools evolve. But I think with uh, tools like Book Funnel, for instance, that helps you deliver the content to others and things like all the mailing software like MailerLite that I use are really, really helpful and didn't exist for us five years ago when I looked at this for the first time. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, a lot of writers dream of their books being in bookstores and having that traditional route. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I read somewhere, too, that agents they don't even really want to consider writers that don't have their own platform already that aren't really putting in the work already. So, you know, they want you to be doing the work already, mm -hmm. you know, so yeah. that's something you kind of have to, you kind of have to think like a self-published author regardless, you know, because they're, they don't want to do everything for you, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. I agree. That was a big factor because I'm someone who loves to learn new things. I loved, uh, I try all kinds of stuff. I learned how to uh, restore a boat. I did this a couple of years ago. I learned how to work on my car. I learned how to, I took a bike this year, this past summer when everybody was looking to ride bikes, right? I bought a bike off the back of a truck and I took it apart and bought all the parts on eBay and watching YouTube. I learned how to build a bike. You know, I took it to a bike shop and they told me I did a good job. That's how I am. I like to learn things. So if I'm going to be doing all that work anyway, to support a traditional publisher, I might as well take just the extra step and learn this new field, the indie publishing and self-publishing, because that way I can also use it to help others. Absolutely. So what would you say are some of the pitfalls and hardships of self publishing. I know I have my list, but I'm, I'm interested in what your list is. Yeah. Well, for me, I have to admit, I am really not good at the hullabaloo, at the, the publicity, at the marketing, at the PT Barnum that it mm -hmm. kind of takes, right? You would think, right, having been in an advertising field that I would be some kind of self-promo whiz. But I think the truth is that visual artists, especially, we need to be really comfortable as loners because you spend mm -hmm. a lot of time working on something that you cannot possibly explain to someone else. And I have a whole theory about visual art and, and this angle, but not to digress, I found that as much as I do love people and I love chatting and I love getting to know everybody, I also have a kind of a leave me alone streak. You gotta have that if you're an artist. And since I hate being bothered, I also hate bothering others. And so I'm not a really good salesperson. I really need to up my game there in that promotion department. That's the hard thing for me. The world is not going to beat a path to your door just because you invented a better mousetrap unless they actually know where the door is. Right. 
I, I think I have a similar one. Yeah, that you know, it takes so much mental resource resources and faculties to do the creative end, but you kind of have to have the same amount of energy for the marketing end, and it yeah. just becomes like a big grind. But you have to do it if you're if you're going to try to uh, get your books out there in the world. It's mm -hmm. just a, a necessary discipline that I think every artist and writer have to uh, develop for themselves. Yeah, it sounds like you and I have the same issue with it is, you know, I, I know it has to be done and I don't mind it. I really do love talking to people, but it's not just about talking to people. There's a lot of drudgery and follow up and you mm -hmm. have to learn how to use things like advertising platforms like the, you know, some of them are a bit buggy and confusing and I'm going to go like <coughs> Amazon. <laughs> you know, it's hard sometimes to figure out why your ad isn't running. You you spend so much time putting together just the right keywords, let's say, and, and then they tell you that your ad is under review and it hangs there for weeks. You're just like, what's going on? So fortunately for me, I have a built-in helper at home. Uh, my husband is a marketing person and I can oh, pick nice. his brain. Yeah, it does help. Although <laughs> he's he's super busy with his own work. So it's not like I can do that a lot, but it is, it's nice to have at least a little bit of help. Another thing that's tough is getting readers to actually leave reviews. So when you first start out, you need a lot of proof that people have read your book and the proof is that you would have reviews. But I found that a lot of people were sending me reviews in email. They would write to me or they would message me and yeah, I loved it or, or you know, here's what I thought. And that's wonderful, but I can't enter those on the platforms. I can't write that on Amazon. And they're also very, very picky about making sure that they're actually strangers doing these reviews and that they actually are not your friends or your <laughs> relatives, right? So it's hard because you don't want to follow up on someone who read your book months ago and say, hey, that nice review that you wrote me, you know, could you do it again, but please put it on Goodreads or something, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, it's it's awkward, That's right? That's hard. Have you found that's difficult too? Yeah, yeah. very very much. So, yeah, please I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they have these. Uh, there's people too that will that you can pay to read your book and everything, but that that'll be expensive, you know. So mm -hmm. yeah, and it's not organic. You know, you really what you really want is true reviews of people who came across your book or who picked it out of a lineup. You know, like you send a promo saying, "Here's." you know, the new books this week, samples, what do you think? If if they actually take the time to click on it and download it and read it, oh my gosh, I would really, really love it if they'd review it, you know, just mm -hmm. leave, leave a little something. It doesn't have to be long. You don't have to write, you know, like Roger Ebert's essay or anything like mm -hmm. that. You could just, just tell me, you know, hey, I read it. Here's a what little I something, yeah. a little something, yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know. We have to try to communicate to readers how important that is. <laughs> Very, yeah. So how was your overall experience writing the first book? Do you think you'll continue to, to write more? And do you can plan on self-publishing in the future? Oh, yeah. Now, I, I maybe had a little problem getting into the promotion mindset. You know, that's that's never been my strong suit. But the writing itself has been a total blast. And I have to admit, even the promotion's been kind of fun 
discovering these tools and learning that I can do it has actually been some fun. So I am not going to stop. Uh, I have three more books planned in this series because I want them to complete an arc. And I have some cool wordplay titles with apostrophe S's planned out for that because people love series, right? Mm -hmm. um, I have another uh, friend who I met through some of the Patrick O'Brien forums who wrote a novel himself. And I'm going to help him with his, publishing his, or at least teaching him what I've learned. I've got another friend who has a nonfiction project that's really, really cool that I'm going to help out with. And, you know, I guess that makes me an indie publisher, really, rather than a self-publisher, because it's not just for myself anymore. So, yeah. You're thinking bigger. That's, that's really mm -hmm. cool. Yeah. So, you've lived a very creative life between illustration and writing. Any last nuggets of wisdom for people desiring to do the same, to live a creative life and possibly earn some income from it? What would you say to the dreamer? Ah, the dreamer. Um, well, the word dream, sometimes people use this in a sort of a pejorative kind of a way, right? As if what you're dreaming isn't grounded in reality. They'll say, oh, you're just dreaming. But don't let anyone tell you that creativity is that kind of a dream. Creativity and creative fields are totally real. They are everywhere. Everything out there in the world that didn't come straight from nature was made by somebody. Our daily surroundings are the product of everyone's creativity. And there's a continuum there between complete fine art, just mental exploration, and complete product engineering, which is, you know, there's a continuum of those things. Mm -hmm. And somewhere along it, there's a place for anyone who likes to make stuff. Now, it, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get rich doing some really, really niche thing, right? That in this whole entire world, only you and maybe three other people are interested in that. <laughs> so, if, that, if that's the case, then what you want to try and do is grow that niche and spread that passion for it onto others. So, just being creative itself isn't magic. But creativity also, on the other hand, is not the culprit when you fail. Um, if you fail, it's not because you were too creative. It was probably because you were impractical or uninformed or mistaken or a thousand other things, but it wasn't because you were too creative. I don't think there's a thing as being, I don't think there's such a thing as being too creative because, and I put it this way, if you can control an explosion and direct it, then it's not just a big noise. It's your rocket to the stars, baby. <laughs> That's awesome advice and, and a good way to look at it too, that creativity is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Anything that's not natural, like you said, was created by somebody. It came from somebody's mm -hmm. imagination. So that's a great way to, to look mm -hmm. at it. Yep. Well, I'm going to have all your links in the show notes, but if people wanted to follow you, maybe even reach out, where can they do that, Ava? Okay. They can, first of all, look on my website, which is avasandor.com, and it's spelled E-V-A-S-A-N-D-O-R.com. Uh, you can search for my book on Goodreads. My book is available on all the different marketing platforms, Amazon, Kobo, Apple Books, Google Play Books, and so forth, BookBub. I'm on Twitter, at Ava Sandor, and I'm also on Instagram, Ava Sandor underscore books and on Facebook at ava.sandor.author. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Ava. I really appreciate it. Oh, it was absolutely a blast, Giancarlo. Thank you for asking me. So that was my conversation with Ava Sandor. All her links will be in the show notes. 
Don't forget to sign up on storykingbooks.com to get your free copy of Kane's Confession. Remember, if you're interested in starting your own podcast, you can visit my website or amazon.com and for less than $5, purchase my latest ebook resource, Launch Your Podcast Like a Pro. Please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash the story king. All those links will be in the show notes. One more thing, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do me the favor of subscribing to it and leaving a positive review on iTunes, Spotify, or the medium of your choice. And share it with your friends and family on social media. I would greatly appreciate that. Thank you for listening to the Story King Podcast, the show all about fiction, film, and form. Please join us next time. Until then.